Good morning, church. How are you today? And hey, we want to welcome everybody on every campus today in Midtown and downtown and DePage and Cairo. And uh, we want to welcome all of those who are going to South Tulsa or Owasso in the chapel today at Battle Creek. Would you just uh, applaud and thank all those who have joined us everywhere? Uh, and if you're watching online today, we're so glad that you're joining us today. And we are in the middle of a series that I've been calling I Love My Church. And I want to tell you today, I love my church. I'm crazy about my church. And, and I've been giving you several reasons uh, why I I love my church. And, and the first week I told you I love my church because it's a place where found people find people. And that it's a group of people who, who have recognized that this is not some cruise ship where you get a midnight buffet, but this is a fishing vessel where all hands are on deck and we are going after the most deadly catch. We're going after people who need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and we're a place where found people, found people find people. And, and then in week two, I told you that I love my church because it's a place where saved people serve people and that they roll up their sleeves and they're helping and they're serving and they found a ministry in the local church and they have found a mission in the world and that's a big deal because we look like Jesus when we're serving the world. And when we ask you to serve, again, it's not something we want from you. It's because we want something for you. We want you to grow. And I believe that's part of the prescription of Jesus for you to grow is for you to find a place of service. And growth is what we talked about all last week because we said healthy people grow and growing people change, right? And that's a fact for all of us. And we saw many, many, many people give their lives to Jesus Christ for the very first time last week. Across our campuses, 79 public professions of Christ last week across all the TC campuses. And, and to God, we give glory uh, for that. And, but, but we see people growing and changing here every week. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we see people growing and changing here every single week at every single campus. And if you want to grow in your faith, I want to give you a key ingredient that, to that today is that you can't do it alone. You can't. You want to grow in your faith, you can't do it alone. In fact, you cannot do life alone. You have to do it together with others. And I love my church because it's a place where growing people get together. It's a place where growing people get together. In fact, we get together, and consequently, we are growing. And that very first church, that New Testament church, it was prophesied by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 16. And it was founded by him on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses there as we begin this morning. But that church started when the Holy Spirit of God poured out all over the people in that upper room, and then it spilled out of that house into the streets where all of heaven broke loose. And you end up with this revival service where 3,000 people get saved in one day. God has put it in my heart recently for us to start praying about that. that we would have a Pentecost at TC, that we would have a day where 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ in one day. And in order for that to happen, listen, it is going to take all of us praying. It's going to take all of us bringing. It's going to take all of us inviting. It's going to take all of us going after people who need the message of Jesus Christ. And the question when you read Acts chapter 2 is what did that first church do? After such an incredible beginning, what, what did they do? The, the answer is not that they started a building fund, right, and started raising money to, to build buildings for those 3,000 people. They, they didn't draw up a membership covenant and get all 3,000 people, you know, we, we agree this, we agree this, we agree. They did not uh, create a board 
and start drafting all kinds of resolutions. No, what did they do? And the answer to that is this simple. They got together. That's what they did, is they got together. Look at that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, and look what the Bible says. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Circle that word, fellowship, in your Bible. And to sharing meals, which means it's biblical to eat together, right? And to prayer. And all the believers met together in verse 44. Circle those words, met together in one place. They worshiped together in verse 46. Circle that word together again. At the temple each day and they met in homes. And and so you see this picture from that very beginning of that early church is they got together over and over and over again. Why was that so important to them? Because they knew what we know, that you can't do life alone and that growing people get together. That's what they do. They get together. Turn back three books to the left in your Bible from Acts 2 back to Mark chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, the second gospel. And Mark chapter 2, there's a story about this guy who couldn't do life alone. And Jesus is going around from place to place. He's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing. And he's at this house and the crowd is so big at this particular house that no one can get inside the house. And in Mark chapter 2 and verses uh, 3, I think, yeah, verse 3, it says, while Jesus was preaching God's word to them, How many of you know that good things happen when the Word of God is being preached? Not just good things, God things happen when the Word of God is being preached, when the Word of God is going forth, when the children of God are sharing the Word of God. God things happen. In verse 3 it says, Four men arrived carrying a man paralyzed on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. And I'm so grateful today that we're a part of a church that doesn't have a crowd that keeps people from coming to Jesus. You ever been in church like that? filled with a crowd of people that prevent people from coming to Jesus. Rather than being a welcome mat for people coming to Jesus, there's this repulsion to people coming to Jesus. And in that day, the crowd was preventing, but they had an answer for that. The Bible says they dug a hole through the roof above the head of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm grateful for a church that's not afraid of messy situations. I'm grateful for a church that's not afraid of messy people, that messy people are welcome here. We all have a mess, and we all bring it with us. And that becomes just a pile of mess, right? And we call it the church. That Jesus Christ loves messy people. He didn't run away from messy people. He ran towards messy people all the time. And and it says that they lowered this man on his mat right down in front of Jesus Christ. Those four men, they had a friend who could not get to Jesus on his own. He needed them. He could not do life alone. So he had friends who came alongside him. But I, I want you to watch this. They couldn't do life alone either, right? They needed their friends because look what the Scripture says there. It it says that Jesus saw their, plural pronoun, possessive, their faith, plural. He said he grouped them together. Jesus didn't see the faith of one of them. He saw the faith of all of them that as it related to their faith, he was grouping them together. Why? Because Jesus knows you and I can't do life alone. He doesn't just know it. He wired it in us that we can't do life alone. And all of us either are or will be at some point in our lives in that position, flat on our back, needing others' help. 
You either are or will be at some point in your life flat on your back needing the help of other people. And that's how we come into the world, right? That's the picture of how we come into this world, helpless and dependent upon others. We're all born needing someone to feed us and someone to clothe us and someone to help us, but we're also born with an inner need for others, an inner need to get together, but then somewhere along the line, we all seem to do it, right? We all fall into the trap, into the ditch, at one point or another in our lives where we think we don't need people. We think we can do it all on our own. Especially men, right? That's the American way, actually, for a man in America. You, the, the whole process, no, hey, I got this. Thanks, I got it. You run into a man coming out of Sam's with a buggy full of junk, right? And, and he hits a bump and everything pours out of it. You got refried beans rolling under vehicles and it's raining and it's puddling. And you say to the guy, hey, man, can I help you with that? No, I got this. That's just the way we try to live life. I got it on my own. And, and you, from the very beginning, God recognized, and again, he didn't just recognize, he engineered it. That you and I need each other, that we can't do life alone. When he created this world, he did something really, really humorous, right? Because he, he, he made uh, the earth, and when he made the earth, he made the sky, and then he made the water, and he put each star in place. And as he created the plants and the animals and, and the ones that walked on the land and the ones that were under the water, he created two of every animal, Right? And then he made humans, and, and he made human beings. And what does he do when he makes human beings? He only made one. Made Adam. And he put Adam on the planet and in the garden where he had him to be there. And he gave him dominion over the rest of the earth. And he even gave him permission and, and the privilege of naming the animals and calling everything by its name. And, and, and so Adam walks around, and he sees that every single animal has a partner. Right? Every bear has a she-bear, you know, right? And, and, and every lion has a lioness, and every bee has a queen bee, right? And every bird has a, a woman bird, right? And, and, but, but for Adam, he had nobody, right? He's all alone. He has nobody. And, and take a look to God's response to that situation in Genesis chapter 2 on the screen in verse 18. And look at what God says. It says, then the Lord God said, it's not good. Say that phrase, it's not good. By the way, when God says it's not good, we're not voting on it. It's not good. He knows what he's talking about. He declared it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. By the way, that's the first time in the Bible that God says it's not good. Remember, everything God made, it said God looked at it and said, and it was good, and it was good. And he made it and said it was good. And now he looks at Adam all alone and he says, not good. This is not good. Now, why did God think through that? Why did God think it was not good? Was it because Adam didn't have anyone to talk to? Of course not, right? When you read the Bible, that's not the scenario. God was there. Adam and God were in intimate relationship with one another. God would come in the cool of the day, and they would have this conversation in the evening. And you could see how that conversation is playing out. You know, God would come and say, hey, Adam, what would you name that one? And Adam says, well, God, I, I named that a dog. It's going to be my best friend dog was like, roof, you know, and, 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 and this is playing out. Well, Adam, what, what, what do you name that? Well, I named that a horse. I think it's going to carry me around, and the horse neighed, right? And, and then God looked at him and said, Adam, what, what are you going to call those demons? He said, we'll call them cats. <laughs> right, you know, just freaky. You cat lovers, by the way, you need deliverance. 
It was not because he didn't have someone to talk to. They had companionship, right? Because he had that with God Almighty. So why was it so devastating that Adam was all alone that God declared, this is not good? What, what was it? I, I want you to look on the screen at this passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5 and, and verse 8. And this is Peter telling the church how to live. And he's saying to them, you got to be careful. And you better watch out. You better protect yourselves. And look, look what he says. He says, stay alert Watch out for your great enemy. By the way, this is not just the enemy of God. This is your enemy because you're the child of God. Watch out for your great enemy, who? The devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone. Circle that one in your Bible and pay attention to that someone. He doesn't say some tribe. He doesn't say some group. He doesn't say some herd. He's looking for someone to devour, someone to devour. You know what the MO is of Satan? It is to isolate. When a lion is hunting, he'll try to get the lamb or the gazelle or whatever it is that lions eat, right? I guess they eat whatever they want to eat. And, and he gets the lion, and he will get that separated from the pack. He will get them isolated. He will, he will get that prey all alone and isolated from the herd. And then he just sits back, and he waits. And he waits for that animal to run themselves ragged. And he waits for that animal to run himself tired. And then he goes in for the kill. And what Satan will do to the children of God is to try to isolate you. And he will try to get you all alone and separate from the herd. Listen, there is nothing more that Satan loves than to hear a Christian say, I don't need church. I'm done. Or I'm not going to be in community. I, I, I don't need that. He loves seeing the Christian who says, I'm done with the getting together. I'm done with the church. He loves the Christ follower who says, I don't need anyone else. And he will just sit back and he will watch that Christian run themselves ragged and run themselves tired. And then he will go in for the kill. And the MO of the devil is he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Right? That's what he is going to do. But when we run in the pack and when we stay in the herd, listen, that's how we we outwit him. A month or so ago, I was at the ocean, and these little fish would come in, little bitty bait fish would come in, but they swim in schools of thousands or tens of thousands, so they look like a big shark in the water. That's the picture. When the body of Christ comes together, we are bigger than we are alone. We can't do life alone, and we stay in the pack, and we stay in the herd, and, and when we are together, nothing can stop us, and nothing can take us down as the body of Christ. Why? Because growing Christians know one thing for sure, we can't do life alone. That growing people, mark it down, they get together. They get together and they stay together and they grow together and they protect each other. That's what growing people do. And, and so we get together around here at TC in so many different ways, right? We got weekend services where we all get together, where we go all out. We got worship. We got baptisms. We got, you know, the Lord's Supper. We, we, we got preaching. And, and we get together in our place of service, right? And our service teams, we get together. And, and big service events, we get together like Guffs or TC Toys. We, we get together. But there's one primary way that we get together at TC, and it's called community groups. And community groups are essential, right, to how we do what we do here at TC. 
I promise you it would be in the thousands if I had kept all of the testimonies, all of the emails, all of the comments of people who have said to me over the last 12 years, Pastor, we attended for a year or we attended for a couple years and we ignored the plea to get in a community group and we finally found a community group and here's what God has done. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This week I probably read a hundred of those comments and those markers of people saying, my life was so much better. My life was so much different. When I finally got in circles and not just rows, and community groups are important. And listen, that's why I've said from the very beginning, we are not a church with community groups. It's not an also-ran thing over there. It is who we are. We are a church of community groups. And I just want you to hear me say that getting involved in a community group, it is foundational to your growth as a Christian. Getting into and being a part of a community group is how we get together apart from Sunday morning and apart from our worship services. And without a community group, you mark it down. I promise you, you will come back and say, Pastor, you were right. Without a community group, you will get lost in the shuffle in our church. Eventually, you will feel isolated. We treat getting together very, very, very seriously around here. Why? Because this book treats it very, very, very seriously. There's a verse in Scripture in chapter 10 of Hebrews, somewhere 24 or 25, and and I'm paraphrasing here at this point. In in a moment, I'll read it to you. But the paraphrase goes like this. Some people have gotten the habit of skipping church in the habit of skipping church. And they don't get together in community group anymore. And we need to do that. We need to keep getting together is what the Bible says there in Hebrews chapter 10. And the together is the vital part. It's, the vital, it's vital to the health of the church and it's vital to the people of the church, right? And there are two main things that need to happen when we get together, okay? And I just want to give you a prescription for effective getting together, for us growing and growing people getting together and growing relationships as we grow stronger in our relationship with God and we grow stronger in our relationship with each other. The first thing when we get together is we got to get real. It doesn't do you any good to get together when you don't get real. It means we're authentic, and we're transparent, and we don't hide. And for some of you, that's so terrifying, right? For all of us, it's frightening. But for some of you, it is terrifying. And we've got to get together. When we get together in any of those settings, we've got to take that mask off. It is crucial because there's so many places in our society today that ask us to be inauthentic. Whether it's at work or at school or the neighborhood pool or wherever, the culture just applauds being inauthentic. In fact, I heard a few weeks ago about this new trend in some places in America where dropping the kids off at school has turned into a fashion show. I mean, I was looking through pictures and images on Google. I was just scrolling through these images. Unbelievable that, that they pull up in these black Escalades, you know, and, and they got designer clothes on, that, and they, they hire people to do their kids' makeup and, and their kids' hair to get them ready to go to school. I would feel really out of place in my lounger pants. Because that's what I'm in when I'm taking the kids to school, right? Because I've been in the study, and it's time to go to school. We're hopping in the car, and we're going. We just pray nothing goes wrong with the car because I don't want to get out. But the world will judge you by how you look and how well you can hide. And the reason is, is because the enemy knows if you hide, he can get you. But the church needs to be a place of refuge from that. 
As a kid, I, as a teenager, I grew up in church, and there was a song we would sing over and over and over in church. If you grew up in church, you heard it because we sang it tens of thousands of times. If you didn't grow up in church, you, you never heard it. But the, the name of the song was Just As I Am. And we would sing this song, Just As I Am, and it was so strange to me as a teenager in church because we would sing that song, and the church seemed to be the place where nobody was just as they were. Nobody, right? You pull in the parking lot cussing and screaming at each other and, and, and yelling, get out of the car and smile. Hey, how you doing? We're great. God's good. And we would sing that song, but, it, but it's called Just As I Am, which was so strange, right? They were all hiding, and they were all wearing a mask. And that's not a picture of church when you look at the Bible, because getting together means getting together to be real. Go to that passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at that together in, in verse 24, and look at what it says there. It says, uh, Hebrews 10, let us think of ways to motivate Put two lines under that verb to mark that it's a verb. One another, circle that word, words, one another, to acts of love and to good works. And by the way, the, the Greek for motivate there, it has the sense of bugging each other. Really, it's a picture of provoking one another, that you are getting under one another's skin and motivating them to, you're getting in each other's business. It is a picture of coming together. And, and that's what we need to do sometimes to get together and take getting together to the next level is getting real. That everyone in the living room and everyone in the circle becomes motivators, becomes provokers, right? Here on Sunday morning, you got one provoker and a bunch of provokettes, right? In buildings all over the place, we got provokettes. But that's not the picture of getting together in church. The, the picture of getting together in church is that you would be in a circle, not a row, and everybody is provoking everybody. Tweet that. That's community, right? That, that sometimes you see that, that, that a Christian's not doing what he should do, or worse, a Christian is doing what he shouldn't do, right? And, and that we want to go after those Christians and to get real with each other in a situation like that, it requires this. And I want you to write the word down and then take a deep breath. The word is confrontation. That being real involves and requires confrontation. Now, some of you just took 17 steps emotionally back because you're terrified of confrontation. And I would just say to you, it is part of life. And I would say to you on the other end of the equation that like confrontation, you need counseling. You need to see a counselor. If you enjoy it and you like it, you need a counselor, right? Because that's not the way God wired you. And I don't know what happened to you as a child, but something happened, and we got to deal with it, right? But, but it's a scary, scary word because a lot of people hate confrontation, but the default for us is to quote Jesus, right, in Matthew 7 where he said, judge not. And that's kind of the way we live Christianity today is we say, hey, I'm going to judge not. Jesus said to judge not, judge not, right? But, but when you read the Gospels, Jesus was always confronting people. Right? On a regular basis, he was confronting people. And he taught us, by the way, how to do that. He taught us how to confront people in the right way. When you read the apostles, they were always confronting people. Over and over and over again, they were confronting people about their lives and how they were living, right? In fact, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which is one big fat confrontation, the whole letter. In fact, it's so big that it needed two letters. And, and, and he said to them, don't judge those outside the church. You judge those inside the church, which we get that exactly wrong all the time, right? The, the judging those outside the church, Jesus is saying, is a lousy thing to do because the expectation you put on them is not valid. 
They're not a part of you. They didn't commit to that. They didn't promise that, right? And, and so you don't put those expectations on them. But those in the church, that's where judgment plays in and has its place. And there are times where you see this brother or sister or follower of Jesus doing something wrong and, and neglecting something wrong. And I just want to say to you, when you read the Bible, it is our responsibility to confront them and to help them and to help correct them, but we have to do it in the right way. That's where Christians get so screwed up is they do it in the wrong way over and over and over and over again, right? Remember the woman at the well? We talked about her a few weeks ago. Jesus has this confrontation with her, and he says, go get your husband. She said, I I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you got five, and the one you're with now is not your husband, right? And then Jesus comes along, which, by the way, he's the seventh man in her life, which is an incredible picture that seven is the number of perfection in Scripture, that the seventh man in her life met all of her needs and took care of what needed to be taken care of so that she could actually go back to the town and tell everybody, come see the man who told me everything I did. What do you think told me everything I did meant? Right? What had she been doing? Bow, chicka, bow, chicka, bow, 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 bow. I mean, this is just, she's a hoochie mama, and this is playing out. Jesus confronted her about it and says to her, hey, we've got to deal with this. And she goes home and tells the whole town, come see the man who told me everything that I have done. Clearly, he did not offend her to the point that she, she was guilty and shameful and all that. No, no. He confronted her to the point that she was excited about what he was going to do in her life and what it meant for her, that he had the power to break chains in her life, right? Jesus confronted her, but, and because it was done in the right way, she went and told everybody in the town, and they all came running. Flip in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. I want to show you just a couple of verses that, where Paul shows us uh, uh, how to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ when something's going on. In, in verse 1, he begins with these words, Dear brothers and sisters, which is a great place for us to just stop and drop anchor. First step in confronting is to have a relationship with them. That's the first step. Brothers and sisters, in other words, I have a relationship with you. If you are an acquaintance or you barely know somebody, you are not the best one to confront them. That's just human psychology. you you, you got to understand that you're not the best one to confront them. And let me just go on record as saying Facebook is a never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever place for Christians to confront other Christians. Never. That's a playground for cowards. Are you listening to me? If, in fact, if I didn't walk with Jesus and I'm watching Christians and how they treat one another on social media, I think you're crazy as hell. And I don't want to go there. I don't want to run with you because I got more fun in hell than I do watching these people who are supposed to love one another, treat one another the way that they treat one another. That is not the place for you to confront one another. That's crazy. Think through that for a moment. And by the way, if you wouldn't complain about what you're complaining about to the 5,000 people on the phone or face-to-face, don't put it on Facebook. That's crazy. And those of you who are bloggers and you think you're God's gift to the world and the Internet, and I'm all for bloggers, but when bloggers see it as their job to attack others and attack Christians on the Internet, you're a coward. You're a coward. I tell preachers all the time, listen, I haven't been flogged, but I have been blogged. And I just want to say to you, and you say, well, that's a coward of you to do that. But my 15-year-old daughter called me after the last service and said, don't say that, Dad. That's cowardly. So what do you mean? She said, you're using the pulpit as a dummy pulpit because they can't talk back to you. And so here's what I want to say to you. I'll meet you outside. 
and let's talk after the service, okay? Because I want you to talk. I want you to hear me. It is not the place for Christians to attack and confront other Christians on the internet. Use common sense. Listen, we have got to start acting like a family. And if there are people that believe about Jesus, what you and I believe about Jesus, it's not the place to attack them out and open about all these little minutia details. We're supposed to be a family and love one another. Listen, confrontation is most effective, according to Paul, when you're a brother or sister. It's a transparent relationship where that happens. And if another believer, look what he says. Go back to the scripture. If another believer, again, this is for believers, right? This is our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If they are overcome, which gives us the great picture of victim to sin, right? Because sin will attack you. The enemy will come against you. That you're not viewing them as the perpetrator all the time. You're viewing them as, to some degree as some sort of a victim to the enemy and some sort of a victim to sin that is attacking them. If another brother or sister, another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, which is another great indicator of who should do this, you are godly. In other words, making sure you're not overcome by the sin, right? Be careful is what the Bible says. You attack somebody and some other, lest you fall into the same sin. And so you got to be godly, which means you got to make sure you're prayed up and, and you're talking to God. Now look what he says. Here's, here's how we do it. They should gently and humbly, gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. That's what Christianity looks like, that we use gentleness and humility and we look like Jesus. Listen, arguments and debates, those don't work. That is not the right prescription to woo people back into the body and back into the past. You're trying to help them get back. Reconciliation is the goal. Listen, trying, not to, or trying to tear them down is not the goal. Making them feel shameful is not the goal. That's not what we're trying to do. And sometimes we, we defer or default to the judge not. But there are some Christians, right, they go the other way. They just judge all the time, right? And they go straight for the jugular, right? I mean, they strike first without thinking. And what I want to say to you is we think it's our job sometimes to convict the whole world of sin. But Paul says lead with gentleness and lead with humility. There's a passage, we've been looking at it a lot in the last six months, Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4 talks about telling the truth in love, right? And Christians like to take that phrase about tell the truth in love and use it to tell the world out there about Jesus. That we're going to tell the truth in love to the world out there and love the sinner when you hate the sin and all of that stuff, right? But the context of that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, that's two and four believers, that's who that's for. And it's talking about how we as believers treat each other. I, I'm not saying that you can't apply it to how you relate to the world. I'm telling you the primary context of that passage is about how we as believers relate to one another and sharing love with one another. And if your idea of showing love is to be mean to someone, you weren't hugged enough as a kid. I'm going to create a room called the hug room, right? And, and, and you just go in there and get a hug, and let's just hug that meanness right out of you. Because our con confrontation of brothers and sisters is to get them on the right track, which leads me to the second thing that is involved in getting real. And it's not just confrontation, it's confession. Being real involves confession. You know what the word confession means, right? It comes from two Greek words, homo logos. Homo means same, logos means words. 
Confession means to say the same word as God. That I say the same thing and the same word about my sin that God says about my sin. That it's sin. And it's not behavior befitting of a child of God, right? And and if we're going to point out the faults in others, we better be ready to admit our own faults. Did you hear what I just said? we got to be ready to admit our own faults. And when you take that word own and you swip the letters around and you take your O-W-N and you confess your O-W-N, you will W-O-N, right? We have one when we confess our own. And there's one type of person that we don't allow here at TC, and that person is perfect, right? None of us are perfect, and we don't want to break our perfect streak. I'm not letting any perfect people in, right? And if we are all imperfect just bears the reason that we all have confession to make, right? If we're all imperfect, it just bears the reason that we would all have confession to make. James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, write that down, we'll look at it on the screen. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Healing comes through confession one to the other, and the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Do you see the difference? Hiding does not produce power. Covering up does not produce power and wonderful results and freedom and chains being broken. No, no, no. Confessing one to another has wonderful results as you pray for one another. And I'm not saying those of you in Egypt who are a part of an Orthodox church or an Orthodox tradition, I'm not saying to you that you can't go to a priest or you can't confess to a priest. What I am saying to you is that this passage is about confessing to one another. And if you want to go to a priest, fine, go to a priest. But what I'm saying to you is you should still confess one to the other. This is the body of Christ being the body of Christ and helping each other and helping one another. We confess our faults to each other again in a transparent relationship. And there is no value in a one-way relationship. None. If you in that relationship are doing all the confessing and the other party is doing no confessing, I, listen, I've been doing this long enough to know that we all have something to confess. All of us. And once you confess one to another, you pray for one another. And when you do that, it has dramatic results. And you may be in bad health, you may be in unconfessed sin, you may be racked with guilt, you may be uh, hindered spiritually, and the only prayer is the surgery of praying together. The only healing is the surgery of praying together. And it's not about being a perfect Christian. That's impossible. There's only one man who's perfect. His name is Jesus Christ. This is about being a growing Christian. Growing people get together and they confess and they confront when they get together. And in fact, I would say it this way, confession should lead. It should be in front of confrontation because it just makes for good confrontation when you confess first. The people who don't confess but just confront, we call them jerks, right? And so that's what getting real is all about. And so there's another part that needs to play into when we get together to make it effective as we build up. We don't just get real. We build up. Look at that passage in Hebrews chapter 10 again. It says that let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another. If you didn't already, circle those words, one another. In other words, it's not one to the others. It's one 
to another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And so after you confess, after you confront, you spend time building up. Nobody likes to feel beat up, pulled down, and, and torn down. Nobody. There's not a person alive that, that likes that, right? And, and so if you feel like you have to spend an hour in recovery after your community group, you're probably in the wrong group. And if you don't have time set aside in your community group to build each other up in the community group, I want you to consider changing your format. And if it's not happening organically, then you need to force it to happen. And you need to make it to happen. The, the community groups, listen, they should start light and they should end light. They, they, you start with a game or food or whatever, then you do the heavy part, then you end light and let everybody leave on a happy note, encouraged by, by the group and encouraged by one another. H- how do you build up? Very simply, you tell them the good about them. You tell them what you see in them. You tell them, what I see that God's doing this in you. It means you celebrate with them the achievements in their lives and the high points in their lives and what God is doing. And it's not just telling that builds up, right? It's showing. Show and tell builds people up. It's so encouraging when you are going through something when you don't have to go through it alone. It's very encouraging. I, I just say to you this week, I just confess to you. Some of you saw my post last week on social media about Meredith's dad being diagnosed with stage three or four B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they started chemotherapy on my father-in-law last week. And I got to tell you, Apart from the ladies in our community group reaching out to Meredith and texting Meredith and emailing Meredith, this would have been a heck of a week. But because they have reached out and because they have loved her, because they have just said, hey, I'm praying for you, or just this little word here or there, it's made a big, big, big difference. In fact, I would just say to you, since this is one of the privileges of being the pastor, you're all in my community group. I want all of you praying for C.E. Dugan. And I want you praying for his healing, his complete healing. I want you speaking words of healing over him. And by the way, those of you who pray that if it be your will prayers, don't pray for him. Those of you who pray for complete healing, you pray for him. And just don't put that stuff on Facebook. Let me just teach you something for a second, okay? Those of you who want to hang out in theology world, you're mean. You're just mean. It is not kind. It is not wonderful. It is not gracious for you to, when somebody says, I want you to pray for my kid who is sick, for you to say, if it be God's will or God be glorified and all that, that's just mean. It's unkind. And and, and I can play in the theological playground with you all day long if you want me to, but I just want you to understand it does not look like Jesus. I understand completely that it's not God's will. It's not, you know, if, if, It's not about whether or not CE is healed or not. That's not what it's about. It's about the glory of God. I get that, but I want him healed. And Jesus said to pray as it is in heaven on earth. In heaven, there is no sickness. I'm praying for no sickness, which is in heaven on earth on my father-in-law today. It is the will of God, and I'm praying that for the will of God. And so don't be unkind to other brothers and sisters in Christ when 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 you talk that way to them. Pray with them. Ask for healing. And believe it and speak it over the people that that are around you. Listen, every community group I've ever been a part of, when something happens, when a member's in the hospital or somebody gives birth or there's a sickness or, or whatever, the community group swoops in and cares for them and cares for those things. 
There's an email that goes out about dinner list, right, about who's going to bring the food. And you better respond quickly, right, because it's going to fill up. And you better get involved in that scenario, right, and then somebody brings over a casserole dish. I just think the gospel goes in casseroles. It just does, and that's the way you do life, right? And, and, and that's what it means to build each other up. And I want you to hear me today. Listen, growing people get together, and that's just really about doing life together. Now, I want you to think about what you're saying to someone when you get together with them. And when you make it a priority to say, hey, I'm going to give one-seventh of my evenings or I'm going to give one portion of my week, Every week to getting together with you, you are communicating that you want to be with them. You are communicating that they are important enough for you to be with them. And that is the gospel. Is there a clearer picture of the gospel? And the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that it started with God, that he wanted to be with us, so he sent Jesus, his son, right? John chapter 1, verse 4 says, and the word who is Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt with us or among us. That's what the word Emmanuel means, right? God with us. And he loves us so much, and he thinks so much of us that he wants to be with us, that, that he left the protected halls of heaven to come to this earth to be with us. And then he died on the cross for our sins and was buried in a grave, and, and he rose again, and, and he left. He went to the right hand of the Father. But you remember what he told us before he left? Listen to what he told us before he left in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Listen, you're going to face trouble in this life, but don't, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, Jesus said, and trust in me also. There is more than enough room in my Father's house, right? It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. And he said, if it were not so, I, I would have told you so. And I am going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me. That where I am, you will be with me. The power of with he loves us so much he wants to be with us. He loves us so much that he's coming to get us. And that's so powerful that the God of the universe, the God who spoke all of this into existence, wants to be together with you. And this church wants to be with you and wants to do life with you because you cannot do life alone. None of us can do life alone. And you know what? This sermon today will be a grand slam if the thousands and thousands of you across all of those rooms that I'm speaking to today will walk out of that room and find a community group. It, it, it will be a grand slam if you will go find one and, and you'll get in one and get in a group with other believers. But before I say goodbye and before I say amen, I think it's incredibly important 
that all of you leave today knowing that you will see Jesus one day forever and ever and ever, and you will be with him for eternity. Would you pray with me across all of our campuses today? Believers are praying. They're asking God to do what only God can do, and they're praying for salvation today. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, you don't know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I, I would just say to you, we're so glad you're here. Maybe you've been here a long time, or maybe the, this is your first time. Somebody invited you. Somebody tricked you into coming. Either way, I, I would say to you, it's a divine appointment that you're here today. And today can be the day of salvation for you. And I want to give you an opportunity to cross that faith line and to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to lead you in a prayer to help you do just that. And I'll pray it one phrase at a time so that you can pray it after me. And if you mean it with all of your heart, I believe the Bible says that Jesus will step out of heaven and step into your life. I'm going to ask you to pray it out loud after me. The people on your row or on your campus, they're going to pray it out loud as an encouragement to you. But if you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, right, right where you're seated, would you just pray with me and would you just say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Today I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Save me. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus to save me and forgive me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for salvation and the